grateful to be here, and, and I'm in the last of a series of messages on the church. And so I know Scott Artavanis was with you last week, and he was in the fifth chapter of 1 Thessalonians. So I'm going to take you back to that letter, and we're going to look at the beginning of that letter for some encouragement this morning. I've entitled this message, A Faith to be Reckoned With a faith to be reckoned with. And the reason I titled it that is because what Paul is doing in this letter is, is um, he's giving us an encouragement by the example of a brand new church. And uh, I, I'm always thrilled when I get to talk about this subject from God's Word because it was a favorite of Paul's and it, it has formulated in my mind certain questions that I like to ask myself and I like to ask other Christians and churches and ministries to sort of open up the door to some challenge to our hearts as we walk through some of these sections in the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians. Questions such as these, are other believers built up in their faith after having spent time with me? In other words, if I have a casual interaction with a Christian or they visit our ministry or it's an abiding discipleship or friendship that we've had over time, Can I actually say that having spent time with me, that person is different? Their faith has been challenged and strengthened. They are encouraged and built up and stronger in their walk with Christ because of spending that kind of time with me. How about people that come to our church? Is our church an encouragement to other ministries that need encouragement? When people come to our church and visit it and are exposed to its ministry, Is their Christian life uh, becoming stagnant, or are they becoming more indifferent, or or are they being charged and challenged and encouraged in their walk with Christ to live in such a way that they then become an example to other believers? That is the nature of the Christian life and what God wants to do with us. Are other ministries challenged by Mission Road Bible Church, by its example? Grace Emanuel Bible Church watches your church. You watch our church. We're in a coalition of churches that try to train men for ministry. And, and I, I come to your church, and your pastor and your leaders have been to our ministry, and some of you have, have been there, and we've cross-pollinated. So the question then is put to our ministries. When I come away from you, am I encouraged and emboldened in my faith? Because your intimate walk with Christ is that visible It's that dramatic. It's not just an assembly where you verbally agree to a doctrinal statement. It's not just events and conferences and and the fact that you have things to do on a Sunday. It's not those things. Your life, your corporate life as worshipers, your personal life as Christians. Am I going to come away having experienced an uplifting and an upbuilding that actually builds conviction, that actually drives my Christian life in a different way? This was a theme Paul loved to talk about in his ministry. He said to the Roman church in chapter 1, verse 8, the the church in Rome, that their faith was being proclaimed throughout the whole world. The, The fact that they were in Christ and in the heart of the Roman Empire, in Rome itself, and they were believers, was encouragement enough, but their strong faith was being talked about. It was a part of conversation. Did you hear what's going on in the church at Rome? And so he says, look, I, I long to come there in, Rome, in Romans chapter 1. I long to come there because I want to impart a strengthening, 
of your faith through my spiritual gift, and I want you to do the same to me, and each will be encouraged by the other's faith, both yours and mine, he said. To the Corinthians, he says, I would rather be spent and expended for your souls. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 15. I'd rather be given over to the encouragement of your faith. And some guards in the Praetorian Guard in Philippi and, or in, uh, in Rome when he was in prison, and some of the prisoners had more boldness to speak the word of God without fear, and other churches had more boldness simply because Paul trusted the Lord in his imprisonment and it caused others to trust the Lord in whatever they were facing. This is a theme. This is what causes ministries to be strengthened. When a missionary comes back and tells me of the struggle that they're in and I hear that their faith has stood strong, I am bolstered. I'm encouraged. Sometimes what makes a man a uh, in the pastorate, a, a useful counselor is the fact that he has been so often encouraged by the power of God transforming someone's life that he's trying to help. And so some hard case comes into the office of a pastor and some, some people wonder, how can that pastor hear so many different struggles and be so patient? I'll tell you how they can be patient. They've seen the power of God in so many other ways doing its work in people's lives. And it has bolstered the pastor's faith so that it resulted in greater conviction and greater patience and greater wisdom in his counsel. This is the body of Christ. The reputation of a ministry and the Christians in that ministry should be that when you spend time with them, you're never the same. You're never the same. You're compelled to a greater trust in God's Word. You're challenged to walk in a greater humility toward one another. You're encouraged in your boldness with the truth as it confronts sinners and offers a Savior. Having been with Christians at MRBC, I want to know, are we admonished in a greater pursuit of holy living? Is my heart going to be filled with with a richer worship, having been with the corporate body here, and will our ministry do the same for you? That is how we live. That's why we live. That's what we live for. That's what must be the trajectory of our life and ministry and the impact of it. We are to consider every day, the writer of Hebrews says, how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. What is amazing here is that Paul uses a brand new church, a brand new church, Somewhere between three weeks and four months old. Paul might have been there three months, and he's down the coast of Corinth, and he writes back to them this letter and extols them and says that they are a pattern. He uses language all through his letters, but particularly here, he uses two Greek terms that indicate pattern, standard, benchmark, something to mimic, the word for mimic, to imitate. He uses these words, example and imitate here, because he's saying, look, this may be a new church, it may be full of new converts, but their conversion is so dramatic and their willingness to stand so profound and shocking, so counterintuitive, that you've already become an example and a pattern and an encouragement to the faith of other churches that have been around a while. And let's admit, they weren't perfect. 
Paul has to admonish them. He has two letters he wrote to them, and he has to admonish them. And Scott probably gave you some of the history, so I won't go into it. But, but essentially, they struggled to know how to connect the dots in some of their theology. Paul had to write back and correct some of that. They, they had fearful worries about the dead loved ones who may have missed the coming of Christ. They didn't want that to happen. They had some impurity that had to be dealt with. In First Thess 4, they had some excelling in love that had to happen. Even there were unruly people in the church. And in Second Thessalonians 3, some of them weren't working, so they were being admonished that they shouldn't eat unless they're working, and they need to be faithful and not unruly. So they weren't a perfect fellowship, but their conversion and their lives since their conversion had an immediate influence on other Christians and on the world around them. And you young people are not the first to make things go viral. God had His method for making things go viral. It was a non-digital method. Just read the book of Acts. You want to see viral? Read the book of Acts. The gospel went viral. The Spirit of God knows no bounds. He doesn't need digital to go viral. The Spirit of God is Himself the gospel virus. And so what happens here is exactly that. All the way down the coast, as Paul travels down to Corinth, he's been to Thessalonica, and word is starting to spread. Notice verse 8. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, and not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place, your faith toward God has gone forth so that we don't have any need to say anything, for they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you. I mean, that is amazing. Paul goes to these little villages and then to places where there are synagogues, and he's planting churches in those major towns and going to villages along the way. And every place he comes to, he says, you are going to be stunned at what happened up in Thessalonica when a church was born out of pagan idol worship, and they're saying, man, we heard about it. We just heard about it. And we sent out messengers to go down the coast to encourage the other believers because persecution's coming, and it's following your steps, Paul, and the Jews from Jerusalem have come, and all around Asia Minor, those that hate the gospel have come, and yet we're sending word down the coast to all those village churches about Thessalonica, about these believers. That's a sweet deal to hear about, to be a new church, and Paul writes back and says, you're already an example. You're already having an impact. And so I, I just take that right to my own heart. Does that kind of thing ever occur when other believers have spent time with me? Is my trust in God an instrument as the song said. Is it a go-to instrument in the hand of God to strengthen the faith of others? When people encounter the body of Christ at Mission Road Bible Church or Grace Emanuel in Florida, does our Christ-likeness compel them to think about Christ and to talk about Christ and to long to have that kind of intimate walk with Christ that they see in your life when they're here? A worship service means nothing if your heart's not in it, and your life's not changing. So what's at the heart of a ministry's spiritual influence? Well, 1 Thessalonians 1, 5 to 10, tell us, tells us what other churches were talking about. And Paul, I mean, their impact came from a lot of things, but Paul highlights three of them here. He puts a spotlight on three inspiring qualities that came out of the dramatic conversion of the Thessalonians and the ongoing work that God was doing in their midst in such a short period of time. 
These things inspired. These traits and qualities and characteristics were already active and they were already newsworthy and they were an instrument in the hands of God to encourage the faith of the others. The first was, a, was their conviction. It was unflinching. Their conviction was unflinching. They had an unflinching conviction, and we might add, at any cost. At any cost. They just did not waver in their convictions. Secondly, they, they had an undeniable repentance. They'd actually turned from the old things and actually turned to the new. <coughs> so their, this transformation was undeniable. You, you got to love that because it was so dramatic you know, there are sometimes you look at some people and you say, oh, man, I just don't know how the gospel's ever going to get through to that individual or to that place. We have missionaries in Italy. We just finished visiting. And when you are in the belly of the beast in Italy and these missionaries are hitting wall after wall in these small, tiny works that they're doing, there, there's, it just rises up within you. Lord, is there ever going to be another convert or another group of people or some more ministry that, that gets really powerful and impacting in this dark place that you've chosen to, to, to darken further. Well, yes. In fact, the only way that happens is for believers to be in a place like that and to have the transformation be so shocking and so counterintuitive and so against what you'd imagine, so beyond human power to cleverly devise that it becomes that kind of influence in someone else's life. Wow, if the power of the gospel does that to those kind of people, that, that emboldens your faith. When you see a relative you never thought would come to Christ completely shattered and broken, and you get your faith bolstered and encouraged. So there was an unflinching conviction at any cost. There's an undeniable repentance from the old life. And the third was this unwavering expectation for the return of Christ. They talked about it. It was on their mind. They wrote Paul or sent messages to Paul. They needed to learn more about it. They needed clarity on it, and it affected their worship. It was in their conversation, and there was one particular theme about their eschatology they wanted to talk about all the time, how Christ had pardoned them from the wrath to come. Verse 10, Paul says, you are waiting for his son from heaven who rescues us from the wrath to come. I mean, he had taught them a theology in a short period of time that went all the way to the end times, and they were anticipating it. It was an anticipation, an expectation, and it, when, you, when you got around their church, when word of their congregation spread, they were talking about pardon. They were talking about God's wrath and how they're rescued from it. They were, Christ and his pardoning grace was at the center of it. And people were being impacted by it. So let's just take a few moments here and let's just walk through this, each of these, and see how Paul describes it. And, and then we'll just keep these questions in the back of our mind. Is this what people go away with when they've been with you? Is this what people go away with from the flavor of the ministry and what they see in our lives and hear in our music and our conversation and our discipleship of one another? First of all, an unflinching conviction at any cost. Verse 6, Paul says, You Thessalonians also became imitators of us and of the Lord. There's that imitation language. Having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. So there it is. 
we can just sort of pull this out for a second and, and spread it out for a minute. They had already become, in their short life, imitators of Paul, the missionaries, and Paul and the missionaries were imitating Christ. Christ's boldness, Christ's clarity, Christ's courage, Christ's willingness to go all the way, that was the gospel. The missionaries modeled it. They preached it. They, they did it when they came into town, and the Thessalonians were already mimicking it. So much so that it became an example to other believers. Now, you notice what we have referenced here is spoken about in verse 5. What were they imitating? Well, Paul says, when we, when we came to you, our gospel didn't come to you in word only. It was in word. It was in the piercing clarity of God's truth. But it wasn't in word only, but it was in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full courage or full assurance or certainty we had an unflinching certainty. These things are true, and where did we get that certainty? It was the power of God to move upon a dead heart into idol worship, to penetrate right into the heart of darkened idol worshipers. They bold. They were bold. And they came in the Holy Spirit with that full certainty. So the first thing you notice here is that the Thessalonians did not go back into their families and into their sphere of influence as converts and take a pragmatic approach. They didn't try to take what they'd learned from Paul and then hide it behind some cultural lingo of the day or some politically correct speech. Look, if, you, if you're an idol worshiper and it's your economics, you might think they were tempted to go back and, and sort of ooze the new gospel that they've experienced into the business life that was so systemic and embedded in the fabric of their, of their world. But they didn't do that. Paul says, you imitated the fact that when we came to town, we, we preached it clearly in word, we preached it in love, but when it collided with the bondage of idolatry, we didn't take a pragmatic approach. You're so new to this, but you're already manifesting the kind of conviction that the churches that spot the coastline all the way down to Corinth already are hearing about, and it's now causing them to stand strong. In other words, these Thessalonians knew the message is what it is. It wasn't invented by men. When it hits the human heart, it changes a life. You don't filter it and alter it somehow on the other end. It's the gospel. It is preached with clarity by all who love it, and a church like this or any church that is healthy and is going to have a powerful influence, has unflinching convictions about the truth, and it drives with precision everything they do in ministry at any cost. doesn't matter the cost. Sure, they had that early zeal that a new Christian has. I mean, I remember when I became a Christian, I was, I was in the throes of a you know, military site with 30 guys above the Arctic Circle. They're all pagan. One other guy's a believer who actually was used by God to lead me to the Lord. And I go to him and I say, I need to be baptized. And we fill up the bathtub and I got baptized in a bathtub. I don't even know if that's legitimate. Rick, is that legitimate? I don't even know. But I was baptized in a bathtub, a full immersion. And water was everywhere. And uh, I came out and I couldn't wait to go tell my, the partner that I worked on the crew with, I went down to his door, I knocked on his door, and, and it's, I don't know what time, but it was sleep time, and he came to the door, and I'm soaking wet. He's, what happened to you? What happened? He thinks it was some emergency. I said, no, man, I was just baptized because I have given my heart to Jesus Christ. He saved me. The guy's saying, what? 
You woke me up for that? And of course, we were the only two Christians on the site. Now, now we hadn't suffered on the blood, etc., but you're locked in a military site with 28 more pagans, and they hate the gospel. Some of them rabidly hate the gospel. And so for the next remaining eight and a half months I had there, having come to Christ, uh, there was no end to, to the, the hemming in and the brutal verbal abuse and things like that, that as a new Christian I had to deal with. But it, I was a new Christian. I was, I was zealous. Well, that was nothing compared to, the, to what was ahead for the Thessalonians. Sure, they had that raw spiritual zeal that all new believers experience and want to tell people about Christ. Early in our walk with Christ, we're thrilled about forgiven sin. We want to tell somebody about it. But this conversion in Thessalonica put them into the crosshairs of Jewish persecution from the Jewish elite and from the surroundings, plus it came with an economic cost because likely the idolatry industry in Thessalonica was was germane to their economics as a people, as a village, as a community. And so a lot of these idol worshipers, which Paul references in, uh, in verse 10, that they actually turned from idols, rather, verse 9, they were probably in business. This was livelihood, this was family, this was connections, this was friends, this was worshiping at the feet of idols. This is, they were probably at some point idol sellers, if not idol makers. They certainly were idol worshipers, and they were going to now have to pay the ultimate price. Some of them, they would be threatened with their life. Some of them beaten, as Paul had been in Philippi just earlier up the road, and some of them would be jailed and imprisoned and eventually lose their life. I never experienced any of that. Any of that. That's why this was such a massive example one of our missionaries, sweet, sweet, precious soul for many, many years. We supported him as a church for 40 years in Mexico, was murdered two years ago by um, some acquaintances of a young man he was witnessing to. I got on the phone with his dear wife a day later, and she said, I need to be strong for the grandkids so they see the power of the gospel rises above these things. I was encouraged. <laughs> My faith was bolstered by hers because she is living out the gospel in a dangerous place at any cost. She's paid a price I haven't paid, but my faith was bolstered. That's what was happening with a brand new church. I mean, she's been a believer many decades. These are new believers, and Paul is so stunned, and he writes and says, look, I'm so thankful because even as a young church, you're already an example, and it's spreading like wildfire how you're withstanding how you're not shading the truth. You're just speaking it in love, but with clarity and boldness and courage. And not just in word, but it is coming through you with power and in the Holy Spirit and with great conviction. You have that assurance, that no hesitation mindset. It's straight at it message. Absolutes from God, clarity about sin, warnings of judgment, persuasions toward forgiveness in Christ alone, commands to believe. That's what the Thessalonians were speaking, and it became a huge encouragement. You know, it's sad. Sometimes uh, your pastor and I have been engaged in conferences and things together where we've gone to places and we go to church services um, where we're invited to go. I remember one such conference I was at, I went to a church service, I was invited to go on the Sunday after I'd spoken for a week. 
um, at a conference, and uh, so I went to this church service on a Sunday morning, and and uh, I'm I'm ready to worship. My heart is filled up. I've been there ministering for a week with a whole bunch of folks. I'm just loving it. I'm excited, and and God is doing His work in my heart and in my family's life and in these people. And I go to this church, so I'm anticipating. Uh, to be encouraged in my faith, built up in my faith. And the, uh, the person who brought the message, uh, the pastor of the church, did not open the Scriptures. There were a couple of verses put on the screen. He talked around them. The whole thing lasted, his discussion lasted for about 20 minutes, said nothing, didn't uphold the truth, didn't highlight Christ. When I went away, I was not encouraged in my faith. I wasn't built up. I wasn't challenged. I wasn't admonished. I wasn't convicted by the Holy Spirit at all except for one thing going through my heart and my mind. Why is this a place where professing believers have to gather at all, Lord? What a disaster! to leave us unencouraged in the faith because you won't be clear about the truth. I love the coalition of churches that we have. I love Mission Road. Why? Because I know that's going to come from your pulpit. But does it come from your life? I know it comes from your pulpit and your elders and your teachers. I know it comes from some of the wonderful people here who are faithful to it. But what what about you? I'm just speaking to you. You, you know who you are. Maybe, maybe my voice needs to come into every seat to every person and just say, when people are around you, have the Thessalonians been an example to you that you're now imitating? Because whatever the cost, you're willing to know God's Word, apply it to hard situations, do it with love. Let the chips fall where they may because your heart is for the building up of the faith of other believers as they see you stand strong in the challenge of it. We've been entrusted with the gospel, Paul said in chapter 2, verse 4. We've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we say it. We speak it. We know the truth. We're compelled by the truth. We speak the truth. Did it cost Paul suffering? Oh, immense suffering. In fact, he told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4, hey, death works every day in my life. People are seeking my life every day, so it dogs my heels, but that death, that persecution is working in me so that life can work in you. More gospel influence. And he said, I'm happy for that to happen because the same spirit of faith, according to what is written in the Old Testament, I believed, therefore I spoke, we also believe, so we speak. Look, if you believe it, you say it. I mean, what is happening to evangelicalism? What is happening to our brothers and sisters in Christ? The tendency is to fear man. And so as the government and as our culture and all of that is pushing against the church to say, hey, zip it or lose it, right? I mean, those bills are now before in several states to make any kind of preaching that offends anyone, hate speech. In Florida, we've got two bills right now they're going to be dealing with. They're trying to make anything that comes from a pulpit of a church where the doors are open to the public, they're trying to make that illegal if that person gets offended because in coming in as a visitor, they didn't know that's what we believed. And since it's open to the public, there you have it, I'm going to jail. As that happens, and it is going to continue to happen, I want to be encouraged that when I call your pastor and I say, hey, how's, how's it going there in 
Prairie Village and in Kansas City, how's it going? I know the onslaught's coming. How's it going? And he says to me, in our church, we believe, therefore we speak. Do you know what that does to Grace Emmanuel Bible Church on the other end of that phone with me? Okay. doesn't matter what comes against me. I know, I know Rick Collins staying faithful, and those elders are staying faithful, and my friends at MRBC are staying faithful. That's encouraging, huge encouragement. That's what is happening here. With full conviction, Paul says, the Word of God has become central in their life already so that you became an example, a tapas, a pattern to all the believers. We want everyone to face the opposition with the joy of the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit doing His work. We face the opposition with the joy of the Holy Spirit. You notice in chapter 2, Paul said the same thing, verse 2. We'd already suffered, been mistreated in Philippi. As you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. We spoke it. Unflinching convictions at any cost. Man, that spreads the faith virally. Secondly, their uh, repentance was undeniable. Their repentance was undeniable. Notice verse 9, they themselves, these believers along the road and in other churches, they report about us. They're telling us about the kind of reception we had when we were with you Thessalonians, how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. You did the 180 in your ministry and in your life and in your personal walk with Christ. You weren't trying to hang on to the old things and make some sort of hybrid. Jesus added to those things. You weren't doing that. Turned here is a very drastic term. You turned from the old things and you turned to the new things. Why? Because that's what happened on the inside. It was undeniable. It was fruit. You know what? You know what um, discourages the faith of a believer? Defection, indifference, a pattern of fear of man that brings a snare, weakness, worldliness. That's what discourages the faith of a believer. When someone says, hey, I've come to Christ, and then you notice that they allow, not just fall back into because of our weakness, but they allow and get comfortable with the things of the old life. That's a discouragement. It's so grieving. Some of you who are in the congregation and not perhaps in some official position of leadership, you have to know that what grieves the leadership most is when those who attend on a regular basis to a corporate assembly have areas in their personal walk with Christ they're unwilling to walk away from or flee from. So the singing and the dressing up and the you know, coming and attending and attending this and listening to that and taking notes here, all that external stuff, it means nothing if you don't do the moral 180 in your life. It doesn't mean anything because in the Scriptures, if you've heard with ears of faith, you have been created in Christ as a new creature. What was thrilling about the Thessalonians is that in such a hard environment where their economics were going to be really harmed, they left it. They absolutely left it in the dust. No more idols. The, the living and true God, he's, he's whom we serve. 
No more selling idols, making idols, worshiping idols, no more trinkets, no more bowing down, no more passing it on to my kids, no more passing that on to the grandkids, no more collecting all of us as families and going down to the local pagan temple and, and bowing down to trees, no more of that. I'm taking my kids and my grandkids and the heritage and we're speaking boldly that that's the old. We've done a moral 180 to the new. And in fact, if you want to study a passage where that is so dramatic, Ephesians 4, <clears throat> Paul talks about how you used to walk as Gentiles in Ephesians 4, 17. Your mind was futile. Your, dark, your understanding was darkened. You didn't have the life of God. You were ignorant. You were hardened in your heart. You were callous. You were given over to sensuality and impurity, and you were greedy in those things. That's the old life. But verse 20 of Ephesians 4, but you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him with ears of faith and been taught in him just as truth it is in Jesus. Look, if you've professed Christ and heard with ears of faith and you've been instructed by the Lord, by the Spirit of God coming into you, he's starting to show you what is old and what is new, then you should be, in reference to your former manner of life, running from those things and to the living and true God. This was Thessalonica. And it was so shocking, so dramatic, that people all up and down the coast were saying, man, that is power. That is a message of power. If it can change a life like that, if it can turn them from the blind callousness of cutting a tree in half, burning half of it for your own warmth because you control the logs, and then carving a face in the other side of the tree and painting it and bowing down to it as if it controls you. If you're that insane and the power of the gospel comes in and you run from that and all the old has to go, even if it affects your pocketbook and everything is new, man, <laughs> my faith is encouraged. God is at work. That's a true church born that's right. So have, have you lost that? I know what happens to Christians. Well, you're already a church. You've been a church a long time. And new people come and go. You're passing the gospel on to church life on to your kids and your grandkids. But what about the danger of indifference and taking a casual approach to change in your life? What about the fact that historically and statistically the third and fourth generation is far more indifferent to the gospel than the one that was saved. Sometimes I'll gather my family around in a room and I'll say, listen, you listen up right now. And there's a whole group of them. I got 10 grandkids, so there's more coming. And I say, bring it on. That's the Genesis Project. We're alive with the Genesis Project. That's a good, healthy church. But I'll gather my kids around and I'll say, listen, I'm a second generation believer. My dad was radically converted out of nothing. My wife is a first-generation believer, radically converted out of Irish Catholicism, steeped in, in nonsense. But we're, we raised our kids, and by, by the Lord's grace, they're, they're in Christ, and, and I don't deserve that, and we made every mistake in the book, but, but somehow the passion and zeal of that early fleeing of our old life to the new was passed on in the form of the fear of God and it passed to them and God was merciful and he used that just like Paul said Timothy's grandmother and mother would teach them and it would be used but I'm looking at 10 grandkids coming up and I'm thinking oh man the third and fourth generation tends to get indifferent 
They don't see the fight. They don't see the struggle. They don't see the… And you know, I, I think the persecution of the church will help that. Maybe our, my grandkids will see more urgency because they see what a culture that I never saw in terms of its hostility to the gospel. But I know what happens. And so what, what this is supposed to do right here, when Paul says, you turn from idols to serve a living God, he is saying that became an example to every other place. Preach with boldness, pass the fear of God to the, ne- to the next generation, do not get casual, do not get indifferent, and do not get comfortable. Don't do that. Are you turning from the old? You didn't learn Christ in your old, former way. You learned Him in the new way. Then in reference to your former manner of life, you throw off. You discard with attitude the old things. You run toward the new. And that's what Thessalonica did. Those believers turned to serve the living and true God. It's the term, I love that term. It's the term for to offer yourself as a sacrifice. They offered themselves to God as a living sacrifice. And it has become now an example No hybrid mix of the new life with old things. Man, it's an encouragement. When I come to your ministry and your leadership encourages me to be more holy, they're not, you know, cutting corners in their personal holiness, I'm encouraged. When I come to this church and I I hear you singing about holiness, but but when I talk to those with whom I interact and I see an emphasis on the purity of conforming to the image of Christ who himself is holy and we're to be holy in all our behavior because he is holy, that encourages my faith. How discouraging if that wasn't the case when the church has become like the world. Lastly, and our time is short, Paul mentions their unwavering expectation of Christ's return, verse 10, just so amazing. You turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, that is Jesus. Here it is, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Central to body life in Thessalonica was the return of Christ as their Savior. They were in unwavering expectation for it. As I said, they wrote back to Paul and said, we're confused about it. If our relatives died before the catching away of the church, then then they must have missed the second coming. How could they have missed the second coming? And he writes back to clarify, no, they haven't missed the second coming. In fact, the dead in Christ will rise first. Be comforted. So it was on their mind. The return of Christ was on their mind, excitement about it was on their mind, love of it was on their mind, and there was a certain sweet element to it that when He does return, me, an idol worshiper who actually blasphemed God with the insanity of carving up a stick and bowing down to it as if it were alive, me who... Maybe I had heard what Isaiah said, that that is utter nonsense because it is no thing. It is dead. It can't speak to you. It's inanimate. Me, a worshiper of that, has heard the gospel and I've turned to the living and true God and when he comes back, I am actually rescued from the wrath to come. I'm actually rescued from it. They... It just permeated their body life and became an encouragement to other believers. I think you're going to see that start happening. In other words, you're going to see two things happen. You're going to see 
believers as we begin to experience persecution in ways we never have as a blessed and, and, and God-protected culture. As you see that, you're going to see us grow in our fear. And we're going to make a lot of mistakes because of fear of man. We fear man more than we think, and we just haven't been tested enough yet. And if you think your human willpower and your sheer resolve and your might uh, beats flight kind of mechanism is going to solve the problem. It's not. Only the Spirit of God can give us the courage to face what is coming. But as that comes, you're also going to see some churches rise up in the midst of that to be an encouragement to the rest. Hey, Christ is coming. We're not, we're not citizens here. We're pilgrims here, citizens there. We're waiting expectantly for the Son, and when He comes, we escape the wrath. Wrath was a huge subject in Paul's preaching. It became a huge thought in the minds and hearts of God's people in Thessalonica. It became a huge theme in their conversation and worship because they were rescued from it. And if you were an idol worshiper like they, that was relief beyond conception. That was relief you know, sometimes I think we live the Christian life and don't encourage someone's faith and aren't used by God to encourage their faith because we really talk about the coming of Christ in our discipleship relationship. How long does it take for you to talk about the resurrection life that is coursing through your spiritual veins? How long does it take for you to talk about the fact that the Lord Jesus is whom you serve and though he's not here, you love him. Though you've not seen him, you rejoice with joy inexpressible because he is coming. He has promised and what he promises, he makes good. How often does it... Does it happen that you're in a conversation and the wrath of God and your rescue from it hasn't come up at all? Why is that? It should be the theme of our, our body life. It should be the joy of our walk. Paul says they're already waiting. And they love the fact that the resurrection power is coursing through their spiritual veins. In the church, in the body life, we ought to be so sick of our sin that we can't wait till we experience righteousness without it. Isn't that amazing? Do you know, it's going to be that we, we will wake up in, in the days of glory and the eternal endless state of being with Christ and we'll never taste sin again, never experience it again. We will know that it was because that's the theme of grace all throughout eternity. You're not going to forget that sin existed. In fact, you're going to know it existed, but you're going to know perfectly what it was in glory, and you're going to be with that sense of relief because you will know it, but in holiness and no more experience with it like we have today. I can't wait for that. I want to see what it's like to be righteous. I also want to see evil dealt with, don't you? I do. I want to see Satan crushed. I want to see evil crushed. I want to see the absolute end of human hopelessness and suffering. I want to see what it means when God says it's never entered into the mind of man all that he's prepared for those who love him, 1 Corinthians 2, 9. I want to be reunited with those that I love. I want, to, I want to talk to those that I've never met and only read about in, in the history of God's redemptive plan. I want to talk to a holy angel. I told the first service, wouldn't that be amazing to sit down with Gabriel and just chat about glory? The church should want those things. 
The Thessalonians wanted them. But mostly they just wanted to look into the face of Christ and somehow try to say in some way that makes sense, Lord, I cannot fathom it, but thank you. Thank you. You know, when I come into a church and that's what they're talking about and that's what they're singing about and that's what they're glorying in and that's what they're living for, my faith is anchored. That's what Thessalonica was already doing. Beloved, that's what you have done to so many. That's what you do for me. That's what I pray our ministry does for your ministry. But that's what you need to do for those you're with. Can someone spend time with you and not have strengthened their convictions, not have a, a more resolve to do the moral 180 away from what is old? Can they spend any time with you and not hear in your life and in your heart and in your words an unwavering expectation of Christ's return and protection from wrath because of His resurrection power? Well, if they can spend time with us and not hear those things, they're not going to be impacted by them. These are the inspiring faith builders of a new, brand new church. <laughs> so it becomes an example to us, and now we need to let it go viral further in our lives. Amen? Bow with me for a moment.